Welcome to Next End Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Amy Sample Ward, the CEO of N10. Amy, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. So um, I asked you to come on and talk a little bit about a newer report that you have done in collaboration with Microsoft. But before we dive into the specifics of that, can you just explain what is N10? How does the network work? Yes, start at the very beginning, you mean? Please. <laughs> so N10, we are a nonprofit, which I clarify because often people um, get confused about that, but we're a capacity builder. We're kind of an in intermediary organization. Our mission is to make sure that all other nonprofits know how to use technology strategically to meet their community needs and to meet their mission. So we don't have a specific focus. We don't only serve environmental organizations or something like that. And we don't have any product focus. To us, it doesn't matter what product you ultimately choose. What we care about is that you knew that products existed, <laughs> that you know how to figure out what will work for your mission and for your staff and your community, and you have access to all the support you would need in that process, whether that's consultants or vendors, or it's talking to that one other nonprofit that's set up just like you and has a staff person just like you, and you can commiserate about everything you do every day. So making sure folks are connected to the educational pieces and resources, but also community and peers and folks to talk to. I really appreciate your introduction on this because it sort of emphasizes that technology is a tool, but not necessarily the solution all the time for every charity in the world. They need to evaluate this based on who they are, what their needs are, all that. Um, exactly. but, but that disclaimer aside, more and more and more of us are using more and more technology tools to get the job done because I think we're seeing the, the efficacy of what that looks like and, and how it impacts other charities. So one of those things that's been out there and growing is this whole idea of cloud computing services. And uh, you, uh, in partnership with Microsoft, did this report this year, did it earlier, actually had one way back. Did you say it came out in 2012? Yeah. Uh, I think you said was the first one. Um, to take a look at what do we know about uh, nonprofit organizations using cloud computing services. So once yeah. again, let's start at the very beginning. What do we mean when we say you're using a cloud service? Well... I think I will answer your question, uh, but I will also answer by taking a roundabout way. And, and that's first to say that I think even in our survey, we define cloud services so that when people are answering, you know, they're all answering to the same definition. But even with that, people still, you know, respond in this specific survey or ask us questions at, you know, post in our online community all the time with really different understandings of what the cloud means. And I think that is just a sign that all of us have more work to do, the educators, the vendors, et cetera, about what it means. Because if folks don't really know what it means, they're not fully going to have a, a platform for thinking about the consequences. Right. Right, and how do I evaluate this if I don't totally understand what it is I'm evaluating? So I think that's a bigger piece, and we can talk about that more too, but in the survey specifically, we were looking at folks who were using online hosted software platforms, tools, that were either hosted in a server that they managed in their office, but again, people are still accessing um, online, not installed onto your machine, or things that were hosted by a vendor, someone that you are purchasing that product from. So they were both giving you the software and hosting it for you. So we 
had both of those options in our survey. So defining that private cloud versus public cloud question, what's in common there is you're using the internet to get right. to and from your information in one way, shape, or form, as opposed to an internal network that we used to have back in the 20th century where you, you know, plug an ethernet cable in and if you weren't in the office, you couldn't see that software, yeah. that information, that data. It just wasn't, you had to go into work to see it. But now exactly. most of us have got some way of seeing at least something email, yes. if nothing else, from somewhere that isn't in the office anymore. And that's exactly. cloud services. Exactly. And I think, you know, there we can talk more about this in, in light of specific questions, if that makes sense. But one of the bigger kind of reflections that I have on this year's data, and of course, previous years, but the way that the sector continues to slowly but quickly, if you know what I mean, it feels like, <laughs> It feels like day to day, like not a lot of people doing it, but then all of a sudden you're like, wait, everybody's doing this. These, some of these changes of nonprofits, of course, as we say every year, but as if this year is the worst, like having to do more with less, yeah. having to stretch and meet more people where they are, which is both a metaphor for like giving them the information they need, but also physically going to the place where those people are instead of expecting people to come to our office, which requires cloud tools, right? To be able to do your work out in the field, as well as nonprofits feeling like we just need the best staff we can get, even if they're not based in our town. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be remote staff. That means our services need to be accessible to someone who's in a different state. Uh, as a permanent state of things, not just they went out in the field that day. So I think all of those factors combined, you, I already knew before we put the survey out, right, there's going to be a lot of, of cloud tools in practice now because people in organizations are weighing, okay, should we hire these staff that are the best we can get regardless of where they are or should we just try and do it with the staff we already have? People are making that decision to hire those folks. We know that cloud tools are going to be used more now. And, and even if you do have such a charity mission that your nonprofit is all centralized in one space, everybody comes into yeah. the same space every day, um, it is such a different world from even just two years ago, let alone um, back in 2012, in terms of what is available to do the work that you want to do. And some of it is moving away from that local desktop install, whether you wanted it to or not. Uh, right. There are some vendors that are just saying, look, we're not going to support the locally installed version of this thing anymore. It doesn't yeah. make sense for us uh, in terms of how our business model is moving. So right. you can get it from us uh, via the cloud, which we think is great, or you can get it somewhere else. And those somewhere else choices, I think, are becoming a little bit more limited. So maybe that awareness of, am I using cloud services, is a little bit higher as some of these folks are thinking, it's time to get my new updated copy of uh you know, Microsoft Office or Adobe, and, and you're told you can't have the desktop install anymore. It's now, you know, you get the subscription service and that's how it works these days. And right. that's changing the model for some charities. Well, in it? some of our questions, it wasn't just a, you know, click your answer type survey. There were open-ended questions too that we analyzed and it wasn't a huge, huge wave of responses. But just to illustrate the point you were making, there were a number of people who said part of the decision they they made to move to an online, to a you know, cloud service, was because the product is fundamentally different if it is hosted on your computer versus a cloud service. Like QuickBooks. Right. How many nonprofits are using QuickBooks? If you have your local QuickBooks install versus QuickBooks Online, it is a actually different product. And so for them, it felt like, well, we're not even making this decision. The product has made this decision for us because we need these features. 
So uh, obviously we're going to use the cloud version of this now. Um, and that was definitely highlighted by some folks who didn't feel like they set out to move to the cloud, quote unquote, right. but they had to. Well, it's interesting you mentioned QuickBooks in particular because I'm just working with a client who's making that transition now. And yeah. I personally am, am shedding a couple of tears because like, oh man, I knew where everything was in your, in your desktop <laughs> installed version. I knew how to do everything I needed to do. And now I have to go learn a very different interface. And it does look yes. very, very different. Yes, As of all the products out there, QuickBooks is, and not just because it's QuickBooks, but because for organizations, it's like, don't mess with the accounting. Right, like that's where we have triple checked that math. The auditors have confirmed it. No one touch it now. You know, it's written in ink, and then you go to move it to a new system. I don't know what what kind of migration could be more stressful for people. Right, but I think in terms of the the evolution of support and and what it's going to be yeah. like, um, you know, Intuit and and other partners out there. We mentioned already Adobe. Others are are just essentially saying, look, we're we're not going to support those other tools in the future. So you know, you should be thinking about this now. You should be making this transition now. So as nonprofits think about this stuff, you had a chance to um, partner with Microsoft in looking at this service. You got a pretty broad range of questions about the experience of nonprofits using cloud services, but you know there's only so many things you could ask. So how did you um, decide? What did you want to focus on for the 2018 report when you were looking at the evolution of cloud services and nonprofits? Yeah, good question. You know, for us, what I think both because of where N10's mission sits and where Microsoft delivers these services, what we were inter really interested in was the decision-making, like, are there things that are huge factors for you when you're trying to make a decision either between products or between, you know, a cloud versus non-cloud product? Are there fears that people have? Um, you know, that was something that was really huge when we first did the report in 2012. Again, people, there were a lot of people that I think didn't even understand what the cloud meant um you know you and i were chatting before and i was saying there were it was not a hundred percent that even used the cloud when right. we did that first report and yet people still responded saying that they use gmail yeah. okay well okay <laughs> you do use the cloud you just don't even understand what that means in application clearly in 2012 and then the next year we did it okay we do have a hundred percent and now the interesting thing is what percentage say they're using three or more now everybody is using three or more, right? Like clearly that I think it's less that more people have adopted them and more that people are aware of how they're accessing their tools. Um, and so we wanted to figure out how do they make these decisions? How are they, how are they considering all of the elements? Again, as their education about what the cloud means increases, so too should their awareness of the factors that go into what that decision really Right. And you mentioned one of those being um, talent. If we have the ability to work with somebody with remote tools um, that gives us more flexibility in hiring and maybe it's contracting and not all hiring, but some mix of that, then, yeah. you know, we've, we've got more opportunity to think about how we do our work differently. But it's a, it's a management decision at that point to start figuring out you can go broader. But right. in addition to that, and the flip side of it that I wanted to 
um, ask about too is I think that there are many more people who live within a reasonable commuting distance from an office that still choose to work remotely sometimes yeah. because the tools work just the same at home. Right. And every now and again, it's nice to just, you know, close the door away from all the coworkers and get some stuff done. And yeah. that is not uh, all that difficult to do in an environment where cloud services are a large portion of your work. And I don't know that I don't know that that really got sussed out as much in this report, again, with just a lack of questions. But did you get that sense, too, that there's not just a oh, we want to hire out, but look at in? Yeah, what's interesting. And of course, this is not this is my read on the report, so mm -hmm. I'll just share that as my caveat before anyone says this is exactly what the report <laughs> says, but um, you know, what's interesting to me when I look at this data from this year is that one of the big advantages, to use the word from the survey, one of the biggest um, pluses that people noted is that this means it can be flexible, we can be productive, you know, people can be more collaborative regardless of where they're based, right? Like using these cloud-based tools is helping us do our jobs better, better meet our mission, really tied to mission. And yet, one of the biggest uh, concerns, both in evaluating cloud services and in you know, moving to a specific product, is security. Yeah. Security of that data, um, what is it, you know, mean, what's vulnerable, what kind of data are we storing there, all of those security questions. And, and what's interesting to me about that is, I think the biggest security concerns are human mm -hmm. and are not in our products. And that's not to say that our products aren't, should not be secure and that we should not be using security as a lens for evaluation. I, yes, for sure, do that. But I think that that, seeing those two pieces that that's a huge plus and that people can be accessing it from anywhere and that's really tied to us meeting our mission and that's really great and then over here as if it's a separate unrelated thing the security of the product is a concern and i just feel like there's something to unpack there in that security comes from our staff knowing how to use the internet safely, how to use our products safely, how to secure their own devices if you're out in the field the likelihood that these organizations are providing cell phones or tablets is unlikely for a lot of the sizes of the organization. Yeah. So that means they're using personal devices. Do these organizations have yep. bring your own device policies? Do they have security policies that exist on personal? All of these things, you know, not to like have this turn into a scary podcast that makes every listener <laughs> fear for the health of their organization. But to me, I think that is a really interesting place for organizations to at least start talking about, right? That, the things that make some of their data vulnerable are the way their staff may be accessing it. And there's so many other areas about security that are so important and so interesting to talk about. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too far, but I do want to just ask a little bit about um, that uh, security through obscurity piece too. I mean, really how likely are you to be targeted as your two person nonprofit organization to, you know, dive into um, you know, whatever is eventually going to end up on a public 990 in most cases anyway. I mean, there's just not that much uh, risk if you don't have a lot of reward for 
grabbing stuff. So I think as you get more more security risk, there's a larger donor database that has more personal information about people or whatever. Then I think in many cases, you know, the the security being managed offsite by a team of security professionals is probably a better security risk for your organization than having your less than one FTE um, IT person trying to come up with a plan. Because I noticed, and let me segue into that, I noticed in the report, you asked about how much internal support do you have for technology usage? And well over half of these organizations have got less than one FTE. I think it's like 70% have 1% or one FTE or lower uh, to manage the stuff on site. So um, that's got to factor into all of the stuff that we're talking about here too, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think dovetailing with that is, is that it was never listed as a primary, but it was consistently the number one secondary focus. And that was the amount of time available to train staff to use these products well. Because as you're saying, if there is only one or part-time, you know, part of a person's time uh, to manage technology, they, all of your staff in any situation, but especially that situation need to be trained because you don't have the capacity to be constantly helping them. Um, So I think it was interesting to me that it was never the primary really, but at least it was the leading secondary factor of people saying, okay, is this a product that we can successfully train our staff to manage because we know we cannot manage it as a, as a department of it where there's, you know, 0.5 FT or something. (laughs) So I think it's important to look at that as a function of this decision-making clearly. But I, I also think that looking then at that data security question from one last moment, um, as I'm looking at the types of services that organizations are using in the cloud, um, donor constituent management um, tends to be one of the larger areas where people are using cloud-based services, as opposed to client management is a slightly smaller percentage is interesting to me. But um, to me, um, if you can uh, entrust the burden of financial security stuff in terms of like recurring credit cards and that kind of stuff, not in your care, um, but somebody else's very well-staffed data center somewhere has got that information. And me as the nonprofit, I don't actually ever see the credit card number. Um, I just know there's a relationship with somebody that I'm talking to and they're managing the risk of, of charging that card and I don't have to have that. I personally think that's an easier space for the nonprofit to be in, but it's got to be something that is, you know, case by case or, or other nonprofits have to think about in terms of what's their risk for gathering that kind of information. Well, I do think that there are a lot of organizations who don't fully understand what PCI compliance entails. And every time you as a staff person are looking at a credit card number, there are a whole, you know, that, that opens essentially three more pages of PCI compliance checklist that you now need to be able to cross off than if you were, as you're saying, using a system where staff are never looking at that credit card number and never actually processing it themselves. And I think a lot of, especially smaller organizations, don't realize the vulnerability that even that has, both as staff and organization and for their clients or their donors. So... I think part of this, again, is understanding, not just, hey, there is a solution, there's a way that we could do our work, we could take donations, we could do whatever, but understanding of the risks of those processes and knowing that there are options that are safer and maybe more compliant. (laughs) Um, But for a lot of organizations, kind of to your security point, they're small enough that they're under the radar of even thinking that they need to go figure out what PCI compliance 
entities. You know, they're also not a target for a cybersecurity attack. So I think there's this level of obscurity that they just kind of operate in where that means they're maybe not being as effective. And, and I hope some of them see this report and start thinking, you know, if they haven't moved into some of these areas yet, that uh, um, this is the time to really evaluate um, before there is a data breach somewhere, before there's an attack. Right. This is the time to make that call. So right. this, I think, really helps people evaluate what sort of like um, organizations have already been able to do, because I think there may be a perceived myth with some smaller organizations like, well, you know, large scale Amazon web services, you know, blah, blah, blah. Too much for me to think about. That's for the big, big, big players. But, you know, we small 10 person nonprofit um, right. don't have access to that. But looking at your report and taking a peek at um, all of the participants that did give you data, there is a lot of smaller players that are 10 or fewer employees that are not large players that are out there and using a lot of these services more than maybe people would think. Yeah, something that I think is interesting, though, about, about the data this year is that all, I mean, it makes sense, but maybe an opportunity for growth is that all of the leading uh, business reasons for using um, cloud services are internal, you know, mm -hmm. document sharing for staff, your CRM, et cetera. The least used, for example, is volunteer management. Welcome to a world where cloud services <laughs> mean so much more efficiency, right? Like let the robots do the work for you instead of what is such such a burdensome role for the volunteer manager staff person to, you know, be managing your list and remembering who is registered for what time slot and emailing people all the time and just all of that relationship management. Enter the world of volunteer management software, right? And the opportunity to automate some of that, to give control both of data and signups and schedule and all of that to your volunteers, take that burden off of your plate. I think there are some places where I think organizations could grow in their efficiency by realizing that cloud services are not only for internal work, right? That these, these are also opportunities where a service could allow your constituents whether whatever their relationship is to you, donor, volunteer, et cetera, to be providing data or interacting with you in a way that's so much more efficient. Well, that's an interesting comparison against the numbers that we do see using the, the donor management stuff um, right. as a much higher percentage as opposed to the internal processes yet as smaller, where um, it's probably an overall as a function of what they do as an organization, a, a smaller amount of, of human transaction time in things like donor management. Totally. But um, they've automated that process first. And I think in part because of this expectation that people expect to be able to give on the web in very familiar ways. They want to be able to give by a phone now, and they, you need a system that can handle uh, a mobile responsive for even a mobile first experience. So people, I think, are getting that part, and they're moving into systems that support that, which almost exclusively are cloud-based. So, okay, that part's picking up speed pretty nicely. But as you point out, this idea of a lot of staff time in the service delivery end of things, using volunteer power, all that stuff, um, is still in maybe older processes in a lot of organizations that I visit. Um, but maybe they don't feel the urgency because there's maybe not as much customer demand that I should be able to log into your website and schedule my own volunteer shift. Why do I have to call an office and wait for office hours and talk to a person and all that stuff? Or, right. or do you hear that some of that is coming along and there is more demand for that now? Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there will be growing demand because demand is always set by the general market and all of us are becoming more and more accustomed to getting to, you know, schedule something quickly on our phone or reschedule our dentist appointment through email or whatever it is. Right. Um, but the piece about the way that you frame that made me think of another section of the report, just thinking about a lot of times in an organization, the person who's managing volunteers is one person. Yeah. Right. So there, it may be less that there's, there is, or there is not, community demand or expectation for that, but that internally there is only one stakeholder involved, right? Advocating for that system. And in this year's report, one of the pieces around decision-making we asked was who is the decision-maker for choosing a cloud service? And most most report that there are two to three people that are essentially a decision-making team, right? That there is not a single decision-maker and so I'm, I'm sharing that kind of in response to that idea, yeah. but also to open up conversation or reflection for listeners that as we start thinking about this, I think it's important for organizations to know who that team is and to make sure that team is diverse, representative across the organization, right? Bringing to the table different concerns or expectations for those products so you get as full a picture as you can when you're looking at, at products. But also, if there are service providers listening, I really still hear every single day service product providers saying, well, who is the decision-making organization? Let's talk to them. And I very rarely hear providers saying, what team can we talk to, right? Yeah. Who's the group of people? Who are all of the stakeholders? Um, and I, I would love to see those service providers change their approach and recognize and, you know, set the expectation that there are multiple voices bringing concerns and advantages to that conversation. Well, I think that's a, a super important point and really good one to think about. And uh, it, it leads me to think that right now we're, we've kind of divided some of these questions into functions as opposed to thinking of the, the one ring to rule them all. You know, do we move into some kind of enterprise level system? We've mentioned Salesforce uh, um, very briefly, um, where you could plug in volunteer management and donor relationship management and email and custom and all of it into one massive thing, which is scary as heck to think about. But um, are we looking at a point of convergence where some of these tools manage more than just their one distinct function and you really are living within one big cloud service instead of several segregated cloud services? You know, I, I, I mean, this is less in the report and more from our experience in the community. And what we're seeing more is a less of a focus um, kind of to what you're saying as it being one system to rule them all and more knowing what the core system is, knowing which is the master, right? If that's your CRM or you have a website that your community's interacting with, whatever, and just ensuring interoperability, hmm. right? That everything can be integrated and taking an approach that doesn't say, well, we've committed to this CRM, so everything has to be within this, saying this is our CRM, this is our master data, and let's go find the best solution so long as it still integrates with this. The best solution after a process may be you know, a module that's already available within the system, but maybe it isn't. And taking an approach that just says we want to maintain this master and have integration allows folks to still 
I think, have a, a more comprehensive approach and review instead of saying, well, you know, we already committed the CRM. Now we're stuck with it. So yeah. what we want to do has to be here. Because I think systems are getting better at recognizing that call for for working together better. <laughs> How that looks, what, you know, is still very different. Um, it's not like everyone just has an easy open API hook that can play nicely with everything, but it is getting more and more common that folks know that's a question they're going to have to answer. It, it is interesting to think about that, um, the way you've framed it as um, a, a central place for synchronization of data so that we know that if this person is a volunteer, that they're also a donor and we talk to right. them about that way. Or if they're a client and a volunteer, we know that as opposed to having these siloed um, opportunities. But I, I actually do have one organization I'm working with that does have a Salesforce implementation just for that purpose. They don't ever go into Salesforce. They hook everything else into Salesforce right. so that it can sync up its various things, but you know, it's MailChimp for email services and it's this other thing for donor processing. And they just use the back end to coordinate, even though in theory, the, the big monster software package, you could have done some of these things natively, but they knew how to do and they liked how the, they were done right. in their little silos. So they use them, but at least there's a place where we're not trying to do what we did um, 20 years ago and copy Excel spreadsheets and say, can you like update that and check for dupes and that kind of thing. Right. And put at the end of it, final. <laughs> what does this mean? You know, yeah. Everyone has a different version that says final. So, yeah. Been well, there. I understand. <laughs> well, and it's just, it's evolving so quickly. And it's, it's really interesting to see because part of what you looked at in here is a cost of ownership question. Um, and you, you do get some of these things through our good partners at TechSoup and other places that are donated um, licenses for these, or at least dramatically reduced cost to donation. So um, we just talked about QuickBooks, uh, a, a very inexpensive online um, donation for eligible charities. So that's great. The cost isn't very high to get the license, but now we have the total cost of ownership question. And as you ask that, do you get a sense from the respondents that everybody has the same understanding of what a total cost of ownership of this is? No, I mean, before folks, I think, could fully answer a question about total cost, they have to be able to understand the implications of the decision to have the product they have versus any other product. And virtually no one of our respondents, not to say the world, said that they, they do any level of return on investment calculation. So... Yeah. If there is virtually no one saying that they are able or actually do calculate the value of having made this decision, how, how do we expect organizations to fully comprehend the total cost of this product, right? Um, I think that just goes to show that our understanding of technology budgeting has a long way to go and that for many organizations, this isn't in, in this report, but it's um, a decade worth of N10's other research, most organizations are still trying to say that technology, you know, is budgeted like office supplies in their <laughs> annual budget. You know, that there's not a separate hosted services, hardware, you know, computers, whatever buckets they want to use, they are not allocating those out as different line items in their budget. So how, how are they even in their basic system setting themselves up to truly understand the costs of doing, of doing their work? 
And I think at one point, probably when that first report was run anyway, part of that total calculation of uh, the return on investment of a cloud service is, well, how often are we going to be down? Um, and that might be in a function of the vendor having problems on their end. More often, I think, a function of your internet service provider just dying on you for some period of time. I don't hear that stuff happening to the degrees that it used to. I mean, it's so rare now that as we look at that part of the uptime question, I think there's probably more uptime from those cloud services in most cases than there is from trying to actually run stuff out of a box in an office somewhere. Oh, totally. Totally, because those other external vendors are focused on that and they're going to have redundancies in place to make sure that one farm goes down, another farm is back up, right? And it's not affecting, you know, we all benefit as small nonprofits that we're probably hosted on a same rack as a really big important right. for-profit company that they don't want to go down, so we're going to stay up too, right? Um, but I, just thinking about these external partners, vendors, something that was really interesting in this report that I think a lot of organizations don't necessarily, I, I think they think about it at the point of making a decision to, to purchase a certain product or move to a certain platform, but not as an ongoing risk for business continuity. And that is, what if these businesses go out of business? Right. Or what if this business gets bought by a bigger fish, right? What happens then? And that did come up in the report and people did say that that was something they are thinking about. But again, in the frame of when we're making a decision, right? Like if we're deciding between two products and one is a big name that, you know, has ads on the subway and one is a name that none of us had ever heard of until we did this research and they're only two years old, how did they make the decision between the viability, you know, of, of hosting with one of those products? So I think that's interesting, but also something that I think organizations talk about, even in light of like how much of our community engagement plan is on Facebook. And then mm -hmm. what happens if Facebook turns our page off right. or Facebook just goes away. So it's not a new concept, but I think organizations could and should be actively having those conversations with their providers to be sure they understand what the plan is if they were bought or going out of business or whatever. Yeah, one of the things that you have in your report is uh, about some of the deciding factors in cloud services decisions. And what was really interesting to me as I looked at specific pieces of that is uh, one of the options to answer several of these questions was there's just very little difference between the options we had available to us. So it wasn't a deciding factor because they all sort of worked the same or they had similar guarantees or functions. And I think uptime is, is getting there where it's like everybody's guaranteeing 99.9% .9 uptime. So whatever, that's kind of the same everywhere. But also um, that, that data exportability question of how do I get out of this if you guys fold up, go away, get bought by somebody else, whatever, is becoming more and more, well, you uh, download it into this very common format that you can, that you brought it in, in and you can try and go somewhere else with it. Um, very much becoming easier to understand the path back out, but you do need to ask the question. Yeah. yeah, and I think that is, I totally agree, it is becoming more common, and I think kind of hand in hand with that is the idea of access to that data, even if you are healthy and we are healthy and nothing's changing, right. just wanting to have a backup, but having a backup that like you can have, 
right? Like that, that isn't also hosted by them in just a log of weekly backups. Um, and what is it? What is that back? Is that backup even accessible? Is it worth considering it a backup? Because if there was a natural disaster, could we actually, you know, open that backup and run it somehow and access our data? or not. Um, I think, it, like I said, it goes hand in hand with what you're saying about just being able to exit too. Yeah, and there might be all kinds of reasons because the field is changing and growing and whatnot where you started out with something that met your needs and maybe it still meets your needs okay, but somebody else comes along in a few years with the thing that meets your needs better um, and you want to make sure that your um, data is able to move into that new thing with the least amount of friction. There's always going to be some. Migrating data from one system to another it, it always requires some amount of effort and planning for that in your total cost of ownership question of if we spend ages and ages and ages of staff time really getting this thing to hum, and then we find out that it collapses in 12 months and we have to go somewhere else, that's, that's important to recognize in, in this calculation as you think about what your options are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting, um, just because it's a little bit different than what I have been hearing from kind of practical feedback in the community, that in the report, people said, the, the majority of, of respondents said that when they're making a decision, they are actually reviewing every one of these possible things, talking to other clients who mm -hmm. did or did not like the product, uh, you know, or wanted to get out, looking at all the things available on the product website, but finding reviews elsewhere, finding customers elsewhere. And I thought that was really interesting because so much of what I normally hear are folks that are at the very beginning of that process and just starting to say like how do we even know what options exist let alone how would we find the clients and the case studies and the external reviews and the whatever it's like how do we even know that there's an alternative to what we're using now so i thought it was kind of inspiring to see that most people once they are down that path making the decision know that they can access or find all these other points of review and use those to help inform their decision. So we are starting to run a little low on time and I wanna um, make sure, first of all, if uh, is there, we've only kind of scratched the surface of some of this report. So, um, and we'll make sure that we've included a link in the show notes for people to be able to get their own copy, take a look at it. But um, are there pieces of these findings that you really wanted to go, oh, we didn't talk about this and it was really unusual or unexpected or interesting this year? No, not necessarily. I mean, I don't have a stake in the game for the specific data, but I do, I do appreciate the opportunity to highlight some of these bigger reflections that there's, there's maybe more to consider than just the product itself. Um, and I would love organizations to keep thinking about the impact different decisions for technology have on staff time. You know, if it's saving them time, that's, that's a huge factor in, in return on investment, for example, that I think gets overlooked but makes the difference between staff getting burned out because they enter something three times a day, you know, or not, <laughs> um, as well as the client experience, et cetera. So really looking at the impact that these tools will have on the way you work and not just what data you collect or how you store it or what site you go to to access it. I think that's really important. Yeah, uh, just to hit that working remotely question piece that was in your, your questions of uh, recent 
um, decisions. So the ability to work remotely, um, over 57% of folks say this was a deciding factor in making yeah. decisions to do this. And that remote work thing isn't just because, uh, you know, um, it's a nicety, but rather you could be losing talent to places that do have um, remote work options and all these right. things. And I do think that if you look at the total cost of ownership of, well, what if we stuck with this thing and then had to replace two people next year, which is a tremendously expensive thing for a charity to do. Um, what if we made it easier for everybody to stay with us, <laughs> give them some options, give them tools, give them things, and then put that into our calculation of we're going to have less staff turnover if we have this thing here than right. if we had chosen not to and, and had to to kind of be more restricted. So people can learn so much more about this, but so many other things, not only from N10's publications and website, but you know, you all get together in person. Uh, so uh, can you just um, help us wrap up a little bit by talking a little bit more about what people can be looking forward to from N10 upcoming events, other publications that might be coming out yeah, soon? Yeah, for sure. If you want something that is online and you can do anytime and you're interested or potentially scared, based on our conversation today. We have an online assessment tool called Tech Accelerate. It's on the website, it's free. Um, you just create an account and you can even have other staff help you. It's intense, it's a real assessment, it's over 70 questions to help you understand where you're at with your tech adoption and where you might be at risk uh, and it'll identify those risks for you. So that's um, on the N10 website, N10.org. Uh, it's called Tech Accelerate. And then otherwise, if you want to keep learning, we have a nonprofit technology management professional certificate that you can do online, online courses all around the year. And you can find that on our website too. And in the spring, we will be here in Portland, Oregon for our annual nonprofit technology conference. So you can join about 2,300 other nonprofit staff of all missions and all job types to come talk about how we use technology to change our world a little bit faster. Perfect. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this report. Really excited to see what is next and what comes out with a more N10 work. So uh, Amy Sampleward, CEO at N10, thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>